Chapter 40 The Spring Thaw January and the first half of February passed in an unmemorable haze of school, homework, and church. Each week seemed to contain the passage of a year as the chill of early winter settled into a freeze, deep, solid, and harsher than any I remembered. During those days of darkness, we longed for the lengthening of the sun, whose return would bring with it our return to the isle. The household bourbon budget dropped off for a time. My father likely felt ashamed of his Christmas spectacle, only to resume in full force on January 16th. Not only was this his birthday, but it also coincided with the day Congress voted to ratify the 18th Amendment. Although liquor sales wouldn't be banned for another year, my father seemed to take it as a personal challenge to hoard all he could before the future drought set in, like some kind of alcoholic Joseph of Egypt. Although my father showed moderation in his daily liquor consumption, attention loomed whenever he was present. This time the discomfort hung not only between him and Walter, but between him and all his sons. Nor was he unaware of our distrust. In his attempts to assuage our concerns, he renewed his efforts to connect with us by spoiling us. He lavished us with gifts and sweets, some from the grocery, others imported from elsewhere in the United States. One day after a heavy snowfall, he returned home with a pair of brand new toboggans. He loaded us into the buckboard wagon next to them, and carted us off to the high hill between Pierre and Castleton, where we spent two hours zipping down the fresh powder. On another occasion in mid-February, during a bitter cold spell, he announced that school had been cancelled and escorted us onto the thick ice which ringed the lake. Together, we figured out how to use the ice-fishing equipment Daddy had gifted Walter at Christmas. When Walter asked if we might be able to walk out to the aisle, my father stiffened, but not from the cold. You wouldn't make it, he answered curtly. The ice is too thin over the deeper water. And that was the end of the matter. It was also the middle of February when Daddy arrived home with a new purchase delivered to his office. In our great room, he pried open the box and lifted from the packing straw a violin case. It's German-made, just like my old one, he informed us. But when he held the polished violin to his chin and scrawled out a few tinny notes, he frowned and added, Not quite the same as the old one, though. I suppose it'll take some getting used to. The return of Daddy's music began at last to thaw the frost that Christmas had glazed over our home. He played daily after supper, regardless of whether my brothers and I were present. He grew accustomed to the new instrument, and before long he was sawing his bow to create music as beautiful as ever. It pained him sometimes, without the presence of his muse, Yet he pushed through the sorrowful measures, tasting more of its healing joys as he did. In watching the transformation which overcame Daddy as he played, a strange desire fell upon me. I decided that I, too, wanted to learn the violin. 
When I entered his study late one evening to share my desire with him, I felt a bit like Queen Esther approaching Xerxes of Persia. Although a gentler spirit had overtaken him the past weeks, a formidable uncertainty continued to surround him. He wielded tremendous and unpredictable power, one we had witnessed at his former violin's execution. Especially after Walter's and my Christmas Eve's dropping, an inextinguishable suspicion lingered. I wondered when and where that wrathful power might flare up again, and whether he might turn it against us. But my desire conquered my apprehension. It was a Friday evening when I approached his behemoth oaken desk. A glass of bourbon sat nearby, but his eyes appeared bright and lucid as they flitted along the countless lines of ledger before him. Daddy? I squeaked. He looked up and smiled warmly. Hello, Peter. I'm sorry, I know I shouldn't be working on a Friday evening, but we added four new supply regions this week. With a chuckle, he added, not that you care about any of that. What can I do for you? I was hoping, well, I clammed up, unable to verbalize my request. Daddy perceived my discomfort. He rounded his desk and knelt in front of me. Out with it, he said, squeezing my shoulder reassuringly. I won't bite. I want to learn how to play the violin, I blurted. Like you. He grinned, then adopted an air of faux earnestness and said, If that's true, I'll give you your first lesson right away. You don't learn how to play the violin. You learn the violin itself. What do you mean? You learn everything about your instrument, like it's your best friend, he explained. You learn its shape, its weight, what kind of wood it's made of, where it came from. You learn how the strings feel under your fingers, how the bow rests best in your hand. And as you're learning every little thing about it, you also learn the music of its strings, how they change to become higher or lower under your touch, how they resonate and sing together. They were, perhaps, the most poetic words my father ever uttered. And I found myself all the more enthralled. So you'll teach me? I asked. Daddy laughed sweetly. Of course I'll teach you. We'll have our second lesson tomorrow, straight away when I come home from work. Each evening of the following weeks, an unpleasant dissonance filled Asphodel Hall. If the noise I produced was painful to my own ears, they must have been downright hellish for everyone else. Our puppy, more a full-grown dog by this point, ran to the furthest corners of the house whenever I picked up the violin. Soon he fled any room I entered, even when I wasn't carrying the instrument of his great displeasure. But those weeks weren't entirely disagreeable for Asphodel's other inhabitants. Degree by degree, the chill of winter yielded its frozen ground to the relative warmth of early spring and its promises of impending life. Snowmelt turned the roads into mud pits and grassy acres into green sponges which squelched and burped up water when stepped upon. Lake Acheron's thick banks of ice also began disappearing. 
Each day after school, Walter would run down to its banks to discover how much more had melted back into liquid water. Like a lapdog gazing up at a table of unreachable food, Walter would stare across the water at the faraway isle, wondering when his day might come. By the last week of March, not one week after my tenth birthday, only scattered ice flows remained. Walter's dreaming and scheming of returning to the isle had increased daily, in an inverse proportion to the amount of ice left on the lake. He was like a herald, ready to burst with a song of triumph, for he knew the final strokes of victory were imminent. That Tuesday morning, on our way to school, he made the big announcement. Our bicycle pedals had scarcely finished their first rotation when he revealed his intentions. Today's the day. The day for what? I asked. The day we go back to the aisle, he explained. There's hardly any ice left, and Mama must be wondering why we haven't visited yet. I put up no argument. Despite my jealousy-fueled bitterness toward him, I was also ready to see Mama again. But Daddy had different plans for us. Good afternoon, boys, he exclaimed as soon as we opened the front door. He was leaning against the wall outside his study door. Walter and I glanced at each other, I with surprise and he with disappointment. After all, it was only three o'clock. On a normal day, he wasn't due home until five or six. Why had he come home so early? Pip burst into view, grinning and hugging Daddy's leg. Unable to contain his enthusiasm, he answered our unspoken question. Daddy's taking us on a trip! Daddy's taking us on a trip! Where? Walter asked suspiciously. And when? With Pip clinging to his leg like a monkey to a coconut tree, Daddy clomped forward and said, You know how we were talking about taking a train out west to see Yellowstone and Yosemite? Sure, I remember, Walter replied. It got me thinking, Daddy said. Maybe it's about time we went. We'll see a whole gaggle of those places from your posters and magazines, and not just Yellowstone and Yosemite. We'll see the Grand Canyon and Zion Canyon, and the giant sequoias and the redwoods in California, and Lake Tahoe in the high country and wherever else we want to go. Walter's response contained far less excitement than Daddy had hoped. For how long? Daddy shrugged. Two months, maybe three. Jacob told me he'd take care of the plant for however long we need. Each word Daddy spoke was another weight added to Walter's sagging face. When are we leaving? he asked. That's the best part, said Daddy. We're leaving on Friday, which means you get to miss the last two months of school. I already booked our train tickets. We're riding first class the whole way. Make no mistake, I wanted to see Mama. I wanted to enjoy her feasts. I wanted to partake in her grand adventures, especially after she'd had all winter to plot and plan. I wanted to know the warmth of her embrace and to hear her adoring voice in my ear as she reminded me how much she loved me. But Daddy was talking about two whole months without textbooks, blackboards, pencils, or math. 
Not only that, but all the Luther boys would be together non-stop, adventuring like outlaws around the American West. Besides all that, I knew it would also give Daddy something to do besides work and drink. Even as a ten-year-old, I realized how much he needed this escape, and I didn't want to bereave him of it. Walter felt differently. I don't want to go, he announced. I'll stay here with Abigail. Pip must have sensed a sudden and dangerous tension in my father's leg, because he immediately let go and backed away. Aren't these the places you've always wanted to visit? asked Daddy, confused and aggravated by Walter's dismissal. Someday, Walter answered. He headed for the stairs and added, Just not right now. Daddy slid sideways, blocking his path. But why not? I thought you'd be up for this even more than your brothers. I just don't, Walter replied. He glared up at Daddy with a flinty defiance. The rest of you can go and have fun, but I'm staying here. I'm sorry you don't want to go, Daddy said, trying to keep his temper in check. But I wasn't exactly giving you an option, so you'd better get used to the idea. Besides, I know that once we get out there, you'll end up having more fun than anyone. I won't, cause I'm not going. The insubordination was brazen, even for Walter. My father's cheeks turned a bright shade of vermilion, and he began to tremble. You will come, he asserted, growling his displeasure. Even if I have to tie you up and drag you onto the Gottverdamped train myself. Like an insolence volcano, Walter was about to spew more, but our father didn't give him the chance. Keep your mouth shut, he roared, seizing Walter by his upper arm to pin him in place. You think I don't know why you want to stay here? It's that island, that damned island. Oh, yes. Pastor Wainwright and I had a nice chat all about it. Walter shot a murderous glance at me. Daddy closed his eyes and took three deep breaths. His roiling rage lowered to a simmer as he regained control of himself. Then he said, I know you've convinced your brothers, and maybe even yourself, that Mama is there. But she's not, Walter. She's not. And I will not let you continue these delusional games any longer. It's not good for you. It's not good for your brothers. So in three days, we're getting on board that train. All of us. And we're not coming home until this, this, insanity is out of your system. Have I made myself clear? Walter didn't speak. He maintained a seething glower as he nodded a forced assent. Daddy sighed, relieved that the fight wouldn't have to continue. Good, he said. Now go upstairs and do your homework, and don't come back down till dinner. Pip, you go play quietly somewhere. Understood? This time all three of us nodded obediently. The moment our bedroom door was shut, Walter laid into me. Why did you tell Pastor Wainwright? He growled. I sat down casually at my writing desk. With that small purchase of time, I devised a lie which I hoped might appease him. I didn't want to, I answered. 
But back when we were going to the aisle every day, he took me aside after church and said Daddy was worried about us. I don't remember him doing that, Walter said suspiciously. It was during that potluck, right before Thanksgiving. Remember that? Anyway, he asked what we were doing, and I tried to say it was nothing, but he said he didn't believe me. I was worried he'd tell Daddy I was lying, or maybe that we should get rid of the boat, so I told him. Walter shook his head pitifully and said, You've got to be the worst, dumbest liar in the world. Damn it, Peter, you messed up everything. I didn't mean to. I thought it was my only choice. Walter groaned and collapsed into his desk chair. Guess you can't change it now, but you've got to be smarter from now on. Yeah, I will. Good. Now shut up while I think about what to do. I didn't fight him. My lies had weaseled me out of a certain beating, and I wasn't about to push my luck. Not until the next morning, as we were riding to school, did Walter reveal where his evening thoughts had taken him. We were on the cart path, only a short distance into the woods beyond the glade, when he spoke his sudden command. Stop, Peter. I looked over my shoulder. He was no longer riding his Schwinn. What's wrong? Forget something? I asked, jumping off my own bicycle. No, we aren't going to school. We're going to see Mama. Walter, come on. Daddy'll find out for sure. Not if we're careful. Besides, what's he going to do? He's making us take this stupid trip anyway, so we might as well visit Mama before we go. It was hard to argue with Walter's logic, but I'd always had a harder time deceiving my father than he did. Daddy's forbiddance of any trip to the aisle was clear, and skipping school on top of such blatant disobedience would double the pain of any punishment. Despite Walter's optimism, I figured our chances of pulling it off undetected were infinitesimal. Miss Carrington would call either Daddy's office or our house to report the unexcused absence from school. If that failed to trap us, we also had Abigail and Eli to contend with, both of them permanent fixtures upon Asphodel's grounds. Even if they didn't see us directly, they certainly might notice the disappearance of a large rowboat. I wouldn't know the word kamikaze for another couple decades, but I understood that a trip to the aisle spelled exactly that, our certain doom. Yet there were two other contending desires inside me, and both of them stronger than my wish to stay out of trouble. In the first place, I also wanted to see Mama again. Months had passed already, and the notion of two more was downright depressing. Secondly, and much more importantly, I didn't want Walter to think me a coward. Fine, I said. Let's do it. Walter beamed with approval, and I hated myself for how proud that made me feel. We'll stash the bicycles here, he said, continuing the explanation of his plan. Then sneak through the woods down to the shed by the lake. We'll have to get the oars and life preservers from there and then hurry the rest of the way to the boat. What about Pip? How will we get him out of the house without Abigail knowing? With genuine regret, Walter said, We won't. It's too risky. 
Besides, he's looking forward to this trip with Daddy. He'll be okay without Mama till we get back. The plan formed. We hurried through the budding spring woods. The sun was still low on the horizon, and our forested acres remained submerged in shadow. A shiver soon set into my bones, and I found myself longing for a jacket. The going was slow across the soggy, uneven forest floor, but after twenty minutes spent skirting the lawn's eastern border, we reached the backside of the old shed. Walter peeked around the corner toward the house and whispered, I don't see anyone. Come on. My heart thumped against my ribs. Our singular stint of thievery at Schrader's Goods and Grocery notwithstanding, this was my most rebellious hour. Although the former ran afoul of Pennsylvania law, cutting school to see Mama felt like the more criminal act. We would be punished far worse for this transgression than if Tom Schrader had caught us, and I paled to consider what that might mean. I shook my head and tried to push it from my mind. I needed all my focus and wits about me if we were to have any chance of succeeding without being caught. Inside the shed, Walter collected the oars, which trailed cobwebs like party streamers. I, meanwhile, removed the life preservers from the nails on which they hung. But as we turned to leave, we found the open door already occupied. The large silhouette of a man stood in our way. Assuming the shadow belonged to Daddy, Walter and I both cried out in fear and alarm. Then the shadow spoke. What are you boys doing? I sighed with relief. It wasn't Daddy, it was Eli. The relief didn't last long. Daddy or not, we were still caught. You're supposed to be on your way to school. Eli stated matter-of-factly, his emotionless voice as deep as the earth's foundations. We, uh, decided not to go, Walter stammered. We're leaving in a few days anyway, and we wanted to take the boat out one more time before we left. Eli said nothing, but his stony gaze told us he was waiting for more. Are you gonna squeal on us? Walter asked pleadingly. I couldn't tell if he was more afraid of the consequences or of someone stopping us from visiting the aisle altogether. Eli's eyes narrowed, but he didn't ponder the question long. A moment later, he stepped aside and answered, Your family's business is no concern of mine. Walter heaved a great sigh and said, Thank you. Using his free hand, he pulled me along by my upper arm but Eli's voice stopped us in our tracks a second time. Ice may be gone, he said, but that water's still cold enough to kill you in minutes. If I was you, I'd be careful. We will, Walter assured him. Then he yanked on my arm again, and we hurried along to the Rosalie.